Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. Remember how straightforward the story of Abraham's servant and Rebekah was? The servant simply went to Mesopotamia, trusted God to find a wife for Isaac, was presented with Rebekah, and then the two made their way back to Canaan. Well, it's time to throw all that out the window. At this point in the story, we have Isaac and Rebekah's son, Jacob, who is going to Mesopotamia himself, but through a convoluted series of events, ends up being locked in a 14-year servitude under his father-in-law, only because he wants to marry the younger and better-looking daughter of Laban's household, even though it would be more customary for him to marry Leah, the elder daughter. So how does all this pan out? Well, let's hear the story. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day, it is not yet time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. From the outset, we should recognize the key players in this story. I'm not concerned with the amount of action they take in the story, but it seems clear enough that the authors are drawing some subtle comparisons between the characters that they've introduced, or at least going through the effort not to harmonize them all under a connective guise. What I mean is that each character is described differently or has a different tone about them, a different characterization. This is important to see now when it is being established so we can be more informed as the characters interact in this chapter in the coming chapters. Think about the cantina scene in Star Wars Episode 4, the very first Star Wars film. You have all those different characters with their wildly different appearances. They don't all play an important part in the story, but it's important for establishing the tone and the way that the writer of that movie compares the actions between the cantina members and Obi-Wan and Luke cues you into Obi-Wan's character. So I think that's what's going on here uh, in a different way because it's a literature opposed to a movie. But I still believe that that's what's happening here. You have these different characters. And the way that the mind compares them when they hear the story informs the hearer about Jacob's character and perhaps uh, 
a more idealized version of Jacob's character that he doesn't actually achieve in this story. So all of that being said, I'm going to chime in whenever we hear of a new character to suggest the distinctions being drawn between all of them, as, again, as they inform Jacob. The first character we hear about is uh, Jacob, so somebody we already know. If we listen to the last chapter, we should recognize that he is truly a child of his mother, one who concerns themselves with material prosperity and who attempts to take control of their own destiny, as it were. Or more accurate to the last chapter, one who attempts to take control of their God. Jacob right now in the story is no good, plain and simple. It says he is going to the land of the sons of the east, which is an interesting detail, as I believe this title is evocative of that Mesopotamian city culture Jacob's family comes from. I say this because it seems that according to scripture, the connotations of eastwardness are intentionally crafted to denote holiness or unholiness in the way that it's used. When it is an action of God, the east is positive. But when it is an act of man, it is negative. God established the garden in the east, the tabernacle entrance of the Israelites faced the east, but when biblical characters are sinful, they go to the east, like Cain after killing Abel, or Adam and Eve after they are thrown out of the garden, eastward. And the people who built the Tower of Babel did so in the east. Therefore, the phrase children of the east seems to denote once again the recurring theme of people insistent upon abandoning God in favor of the city life, that serves them. And I think the children of Babel, uh, those who built the tower in that previous story, are the perfect example. That's a very good observation. The Hebrew word for east is kedem, which also has the connotation of antiquity. So the east is not just a direction as we think of it today, but an origin point. This makes sense with how humans have practically measured time, with the days being divided by the sun rising in the east, and setting in the west. When the sun is in the east, the day is beginning, and when it is in the west, it is ending. Since God is the origin of everything, God is naturally characterized by the east. So when human characters attempt to go east on their own, they are attempting to deify themselves, which certainly goes hand in hand with the palace temple complex and with idolatry in general. This might seem foreign to modern people, but we need to understand these patterns and how the original hearers would have understood the meaning of Kedem as both referring to the direction of the east and also as the origin point of something. Jacob then comes across the flocks of sheep, which I would argue is a functional character. The sheep wait patiently to receive water from their shepherds, which is the scriptural ideal. Jacob could be like them, but he isn't, as we will soon see. Jacob then interacts with some shepherds from Haran, they are those over the sheep we just heard about. The shepherds tell Jacob about Laban and then alert Jacob that Laban's daughter, Rachel, was approaching with her sheep as she was a shepherdess. This detail is interesting because Rachel's name means you lamb, so she is herself a sheep, but also a shepherd. I don't want to go too in-depth uh, into the speculative significance of this detail, but it should be earmarked for when we learn more about her character. Perhaps it is a reference to Jacob's family lineage as it relates to Jacob's current character. Jacob's fathers were people who were called to live as sheep and live under the aegis of Yahweh the shepherd, and now Jacob is the current descendant who should be acting like a sheep, but he is traveling on his own accord eastward to secure for himself that which he desires, acting as his own shepherd. Hearing the words of his true shepherd from the previous chapter and ignoring the meaning of those words, twisting them to serve himself and his interests. 
So perhaps Jacob is attracted to Rachel after their first interaction because he sees how much like him she is. And again, I'm being a little bit uh, lenient and speculative, but I do think it's interesting that the way he is acting is uh, almost identical to the actual function, the actual role that Rachel is playing in this part of the story. She's a sheep and a shepherdess, and Jacob should be a sheep, and he's acting as his own shepherd, which, ask any Bedouin shepherd, that's non-functional. A sheep can't be a shepherd. That's not the way that the animal operates on a psychological and behavioral level. It's just non-functional. This is one of the most important facets of Jacob's character and something that we need to pay special attention to. Jacob, the eventual namesake of Israel, behaves not unlike the Nachash in Genesis 3, that is, the serpent whose twisting of God's words leads to the expulsion from God's well-watered oasis. We can't miss out on this connection because it is a clear self-criticism of the authors. The answer is not to be found in their own tribe, and not even by the god of their tribe, but by the universal god of all tribes. The last thing I want to point out is that when Jacob sees Rachel coming with her sheep, he calls for the well to be opened up and for the shepherds to take the sheep out to the pasture. And the shepherds prevent this by saying that they must wait so that all the sheep are present in order to receive water. This is a pretty arbitrary detail, but in context, it is obvious Jacob wants to get rid of the shepherds around him so that he can be one-on-one with Rachel when she arrives. That, or he wants to open up the well early for the sake of earning Rachel and or Laban's favor. Jacob is a businessman. He's on a mission. Jacob is smooth, remember, like the serpent in the garden, like the humans were naked. He is slick. It's all the same concept in Hebrew. So he's going to connive some way to get what he wants. That is his entire character. The shepherds don't budge, however. Their character serves as a reminder that this setting Jacob has found himself in, the sheep waiting for water, is about the sheep. It's not about him. It is not about securing some sort of social standing with your potential spouse and their father. The shepherds are there to serve the sheep, the least among them, and they are determined that all sheep are present to drink from the well before they open it up. The subtleties are brilliant, as they paint Jacob as this really selfish and controlling character. Because remember, his name, as it was established at his character introduction, denotes that he grasps the heel of the one who is actually deserving. Esau, the deserving child, the firstborn, Jacob is grasping his heel and taking what belongs to Esau for himself. So that's the definition, the sign of his character. In a sort of meta way, it is a sign of the people of Israel in the later portions of the total biblical narrative, which makes sense because they get their name from this very character. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So right off the bat, I don't have much to say about it, but I do want to point out once again that just like the previous chapter, the text is very adamant that we remember Laban is Jacob's mother's brother, right? It's his uncle. So the text is reminding us constantly that Jacob's obsession with Rachel that we're about to hear about is an obsession with his cousin, who is like him in character, who comes from the city 
that represents the desires and the greed that Jacob inherited from his mother, who was from that same city. So again, it's it's uh, sort of like a, a, a black hole, a self-serving spiral of city mindset and greed. And the text is pushing that over and over again, that it's this family, it's this Mesopotamian family that's obsessed with these uh, self-serving values. Another thing that I can't help but notice is the striking inverse of events in this passage compared to the passage that deals with Abraham's servant getting a wife for Isaac. In that passage, Abraham's servant goes to the same land, the same family, and Rebekah gives him and his camel some water to drink. However, in this passage, Jacob, the foreigner in the situation, comes and waters the sheep of Rachel in order to earn her and her father's favor. These two stories are strikingly similar, but this is the first really significant difference in the way the characters interact. And it causes things to go poorly for Jacob uh, in the coming years, as opposed to how they went very well for the servant in chapter 24. In chapter 24, the offering of water is a symbol of mercy toward the outsider, but here it is Jacob enforcing his own strength on the source of water in order to accomplish his own desires. He's like a snake oil dealer in the Wild West that wanders into a town to rob people of their money, and then he skedaddles. He might be treated with hospitality by the townsfolk, but he has ill intent. Right. These stories really only have their full force when you hear them within the context of the entire narrative. The Bible has an incredibly clever teaching technique where it shows you the right thing expressed in a story and then tells a very similar story demonstrating the wrong behavior. This is true here. We should still have the story of Abraham's servant firmly in our mind as something very similar happens here with Jacob, and we should also be continuously aware of Jacob's name, meaning the usurper. We have to put in the extra effort since Hebrew is not our native tongue, but it's necessary that we do so in order for the literary mechanics to effectively hit. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Remember the concepts of progeny and children being the image of their fathers. Laban was not literally Jacob's father. Uh, he is a patriarchal figure in the family line, but not actually his father. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the rest of this story and how Laban acts toward Jacob. We normally hear this story and paint Laban as the antagonist of the story, and while he is, Jacob is no good either. And I hope we have done a good enough job up to this point illustrating that, despite the efforts of many biblical scholars and interpreters, to ignore Jacob's beguiling nature. Jacob and Laban are both swindlers. How then do you hear Laban when he says, Surely you are my bone and my flesh? Perhaps it serves two purposes even, to illustrate the similarity between these characters' beguiling behavior, and also to foreshadow Jacob essentially being a slave to Laban for 20 years, because it doesn't say, Surely you are from my bone or of my bone and of my flesh, but he says, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Once again, it's that Mesopotamian city mindset of possession and control. This is Laban's family member, and his immediate desire is to enslave him. It's also good to be reminded that Laban's name roughly refers to building material, as in a brick. So Laban's name should instantly put the image in our heads of entrapment, 
he will wall you up and keep you imprisoned, which is essentially what happens to Jacob in this narrative. Laban is the ultimate Mesopotamian. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Laban's behavior here is pretty awful. We saw in chapter 24 that this very same character, Laban, expressed complete acceptance regarding the marriage of his sister Rebekah to Isaac, who was not even present in the story. Remember, Isaac was back home. Actually, he and the other family members wanted Rebekah to stick around for a while. Perhaps this was to pull some sort of trick on Abraham's servant, but of that we can't be sure. The reason it all worked out, though, and the reason they ended up accepting the marriage and sending Rebekah away with the servant was the inarguable influence God had over the situation from the purview of the characters, because it was communicated by Abraham's servant. In chapter 28, Jacob does not pray to God in the wilderness. God shows up in a dream of Jacob's and tells him of the authority he has over Jacob's future and promises Jacob influence over humanity, blessing all the families of the earth, etc. Jacob makes an idol for this God, and then he moves on. Now, here in chapter 29, we hear how Jacob acted toward Rachel at the well, and all we can really gather from the details of the story is that Jacob was infatuated with her, and with his knowledge of her being a daughter of Laban, he became desperate to earn her and her father's favor. We then hear that Jacob met with Laban and told him, quote-unquote, all these things, which were the things he told Rachel, that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. That's all. There is no mention of the promises Jacob received from God, no activity on Jacob's part to be a blessing to this family free of charge, as God told Jacob that in him and his descendants every family on the earth would be blessed. No, there's just nothing about that. That exchange totally disappears from Jacob's purview while he is distracted by his attractive cousin. I mean, come on. Naturally, as a city dweller would do, Laban takes advantage of Jacob. That is the main difference here from chapter 24 with Rebekah and Abraham's servant. Laban accepted the matter in 24, but now instead of accepting, he dialogues with Jacob and ensnares him into slavery. And don't be confused. It is slavery. Jacob has left the promises of God to sell himself away as a slave under his uncle for the sake of the uncle's hot daughter. It sounds ridiculous because it is ridiculous. It also serves to mention that Jacob is infatuated by Rachel because of how she looks. Again, this is bad news in scripture. By sight, the fruit of the Garden of Eden looked good to eat from Eve's point of view, but it was actually poisonous for her. You can think of idolatry here as well. The whole point of an idol is to create something aesthetically pleasing to worship. In fact, that word idol comes from a root in Greek, referring to sight. The worship of beauty is problematic because beauty, if it's only aesthetic, can be misleading. It's really fascinating then when we are reminded of the fact that the scriptural God is ultimately aniconic, meaning that he is not seen and he cannot be represented by images. 
As Obi-Wan Kenobi says in the original Star Wars film, your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. This is obviously common sense, but it is a broader point that the scriptural authors are making here. If we contrast this with Hellenism, it's the exact opposite. The Greeks were obsessed with aesthetics and beauty. Even Plato's theory of the forms is about how the fullness of reality is expressed in ideas, which again comes from the same Greek root that idol is from. So the Bible isn't interested in what you see, whether it be concretely in reality or whether it's abstract like Plato's world of ideas. No, no. The Bible is interested in you having ears to hear and it's interested in you obeying. It's as simple as that. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And before we move on, I just want to point out the fact that uh, in English it says a week. Jacob served for a week. But in Hebrew, a week is just a cycle of seven. So it could be seven days, seven years, and it's clear from the other parts of the text that it is indeed seven years. So Leah's name means to be weary, which is very appropriate because Jacob is slaving under Laban's boot. Laban also gives Leah's servant Zilpah, and her name means a sprinkling or a pouring. And what do you know? Laban, just like Jacob, swindles their own family member out of an agreement. Jacob serves for another seven years for Rachel, and Laban follows through with the agreement, also giving Bilhah as Rachel's servant. Bilhah means troubled. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. As is in God's character, according to what we have learned from Scripture thus far, his favor is with the outcast, the hated, the lowly. Leah has Reuben, and his name is a play on the word ra'ah, meaning to see. So his name literally means, see ye, see you, a son, as in behold your son. Because God saw Leah's affliction. Her second son is Simeon, which is a play on the word shema, which means to hear because as she says, God has heard how Leah is hated. Her next son is called Levi, which means attached or joined, as she hopes this will make her husband actually joined to her, as this is her third son with him. 
and of course the number three often symbolizes completion. She is a fourth son, and this son symbolizes her faithfulness in God throughout this closing passage, as she relies on him for comfort throughout the emotionally arduous process of being the wife of a man who hates her, but still has sex with her, likely only for the sake of his own progeny. When she has this fourth child, however, she does not make mention of her husband, and instead praises Yahweh alone and acknowledges him alone. This is significant because this series of her birthing four children shows a sort of miniature character development in Leah herself. She starts out by desiring to receive love from her husband. She feels pain when she is instead hated by him. Then she has three children with him, and her hope is that these children she produces would make her more desirable in his eyes. By the fourth child, we have no idea if her hopes were fulfilled. All we know is that she is now only concerned with recognizing the faithfulness of Yahweh, who is there through all three of her other pregnancies. It is a beautiful thing. Judah's name, then, is essentially the Hiphil imperfect third-person masculine singular of Yadah, thus meaning he shall praise. But according to the Masoretes, it is pronounced differently, suggesting it is some sort of passive participle, meaning praised one, rendering Judah as the one who is praised. So it's Yehudah versus Yehoda. He is praised or he will praise. But I disagree with the Masoretes here. I would prefer the grammatically functional version of that Yehoda, which would suggest that Judah is one who will praise, not one who will be praised. Because it makes more sense with the content of this chapter. Judah symbolizes Leah's conclusive character moment of recognizing Yahweh is the only one worthy of praise and recognition, not her husband. And this child is thus dedicated to Yahweh by his name, suggesting that he will be one who gives praise to Yahweh. What's more is that the letters that constitute Judah's name are the exact same letters that constitute the divine name Yahweh, yod heh or yod heh depending on your school of pronunciation. Except with Judah's name, there is an extra dalit, or D letter, between the third and fourth letter, suggesting even more strongly a connection between Judah's existence as the one whose entire character existence is dedicated to praising Yahweh. So Yahweh's name is spelled yod heh and Judah's name is yod Hey wow dalit Hey. So they're almost exactly the same, save the extra letter. And this is somewhat a product of the conjugation of the verb that Judah's name comes from. I realize that, but it can't be ignored, the similarity of the two names. Remember, Jesus Christ is a child of Judah. And perhaps the scriptural concept of this name Judah makes more sense as it contributes to the totality of both testamental literatures. Judah is one who praises God, and Christ himself was one who attributed no action and no power to himself, but always pointed to God, a point so directly implanted in the literature of the New Testament that it makes some Christians uncomfortable to see how often Jesus denies recognition for himself. Because that is what it means to be a Judahite, to be a son of Judah. Because as Judah, the character is being established here, whether or not he actually fulfills this role, whether or not his descendants fill this role is immaterial. The character of Judah, the name Judah, as it is presented in the literature of the Old Testament here in this story, is telling us, the hearers, that to be of Judah is to be one who praises God. And more than that, it should be a reminder of this story where Judah gets his name, 
so that we would be like the mother who, after a series of afflictions, in trying to solve those afflictions by the work of her own hands and her own body, finally accepts the fact that regardless of the situation, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the outcome of your own actions, all goodness, all productivity, and all blessing should cause you to praise God and God alone. That should be the singular focus of your attention, just like Leah and just like Jesus Christ during his time as he tabernacled among us. May we be ever attentive of this fact as we continue through the literature and when we step away from scripture and podcasts and sermons and homilies and church. Remember, everything that crosses your path is from God and every blessing you receive is a blessing from God and God alone. And every praise, every thanksgiving should be to him and him alone. Lord, have mercy on us all. Go in peace and serve your neighbor. Amen.